Section 36 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Youth 3, Part 5. Christophe was free of Ada, but he was not free of himself. In vain did he try to return into illusion, and to take up again the calm and chaste strength of the past. We cannot return to the past. We have to go onward. It is useless to turn back, save only to see the places by which we have passed, the distant smoke from the roofs under which we have slept, dying away on the horizon, in the mists of memory. But nothing so distances us from the soul that we had as a few months of passion, the road takes a sudden turn. The country is changed. It is as though we were saying good-bye for the last time to all that we are leaving behind. Christophe could not yield to it. He held out his arms to the past. He strove desperately to bring to life again the soul that had been his, lonely and resigned. But it was gone. Passion itself is not so dangerous as the ruins that it heaps up and leaves behind. In vain did Christophe not love— in vain, for a moment, did he despise love. He bore the marks of its talons. His whole being was steeped in it. There was in his heart a void which must be filled with that terrible need of tenderness and pleasure which devours men and women when they have once tasted it. Some other passion was needed. Were it only the contrary passion, the passion of contempt, of proud purity, of faith in virtue? They were not enough. They were not enough to stay his hunger. They were only the food of a moment. His life consisted of a succession of violent reactions, leaps from one extreme to the other. Sometimes he would bend his passion to rules inhumanly ascetic, not eating, drinking water, wearing himself out with walking, heavy tasks, and so not sleeping, denying himself every sort of pleasure, Sometimes he would persuade himself that strength is the true morality for people like himself, and he would plunge into the quest of joy. In either case he was unhappy. He could no longer be alone. He could no longer not be alone. The only thing that could have saved him would have been to find a true friendship. Rosa's, perhaps. He could have taken refuge in that. But the rupture was complete between the two families. They no longer met. Only once had Christophe seen Rosa. She was just coming out from Mass. He had hesitated to bow to her, and when she saw him she had made a movement towards him. But when he had tried to go to her through the stream of the devout walking down the steps, she had turned her eyes away. And when he approached her, she bowed coldly and passed on. In the girl's heart he felt intense, icy contempt and he did not feel that she still loved him and would have liked to tell him so. But she had come to think of her love as a fault and foolishness. She thought Christophe bad and corrupt, and further from her than ever, so they were lost to each other forever. And perhaps it was as well for both of them. In spite of her goodness, she was not near enough to life to be able to understand him. In spite of his need of affection and respect, 
he would have stifled in a commonplace and confined existence without joy without sorrow without air they would both have suffered the unfortunate occurrence which cut them apart was when all was told perhaps fortunate as often happens as always happens to those who are strong and endure but at the moment it was a great sorrow and a great misfortune for them especially for christophe such virtuous intolerance such narrowness of soul which sometimes seems to deprive those who have the most of them of all intelligence and those who are most good of kindness irritated him hurt him and flung him back in protest into a freer life during his loafing with ada in the beer gardens of the neighborhood he had made acquaintance with several good fellows bohemians whose carelessness and freedom of manners had not been altogether distasteful to him one of them friedmann a musician like himself an organist a man of thirty was not without intelligence and was good at his work but he was incurably lazy and rather than make the slightest effort to be more than mediocre he would have died of hunger though not perhaps of thirst he comforted himself in his indolence by speaking ill of those who lived energetically god knows why and his sallies rather heavy for the most part generally made people laugh having more liberty than his companions he was not afraid though timidly and with winks and nods and suggestive remarks to sneer at those who held positions he was even capable of not having ready-made opinions about music and of having a sly fling at the forged reputations of the great men of the day he had no mercy upon women either when he was making his jokes he loved to repeat the old saying of some misogynist monk about them and christophe enjoyed its bitterness just then more than anybody femina mors animae in his state of upheaval christophe found some distraction in talking to friedmann he judged him he could not long take pleasure in this vulgar bantering wit his mockery and perpetual denial became irritating before long and he felt the impotence of it all but it did soothe his exasperation with the self-sufficient stupidity of the philistines while he heartily despised his companion christophe could not do without him they were continually seen together sitting with the unclassed and doubtful people of friedmann's acquaintance who were even more worthless than himself they used to play and harangue and drink the whole evening christophe would suddenly wake up in the midst of the dreadful smell of food and tobacco he would look at the people about him with strange eyes he would not recognize them he would think in agony where am i who are these people what have i to do with them their remarks and their laughter would make him sick but he could not bring himself to leave them he was afraid of going home and of being left alone face to face with his soul his desires and remorse he was going to the dogs he knew it he was doing it deliberately with cruel clarity he saw in friedmann the degraded image of what he was of what he would be one day and he was passing through a phase of such disheartenedness and disgust that instead of being brought to himself by such a menace it actually brought him low he would have gone to the dogs if he could fortunately like all creatures of his kind he had a spring a succor against destruction which others do not possess his strength his instinct for life his instinct against letting himself perish 
an instinct more intelligent than his intelligence and stronger than his will. And also, unknown to himself, he had the strange curiosity of the artist, that passionate, impersonal quality which is in every creature really endowed with creative power. In vain did he love, suffer, give himself utterly to all his passions. He saw them. They were in him, but they were not himself. A myriad of little souls moved obscurely in him towards a fixed point unknown, yet certain, just like the planetary worlds which are drawn through space into a mysterious abyss. That perpetual state of unconscious action and reaction was shown especially in those giddy moments when sleep came over his daily life, and from the depths of sleep and the night rose the multiform face of being with its sphinx-like gaze. For a year Christophe had been obsessed with dreams in which, in a second of time, he felt clearly with perfect illusion that he was at one and the same time several different creatures, often far removed from each other by countries, worlds, centuries. In his waking state, Christophe was still under his hallucination and uneasiness, though he could not remember what had caused it. It was like the weariness left by some fixed idea that is gone, though traces of it are left and there is no understanding it. But while his soul was so troublously struggling through the network of the days, another soul, eager and serene, was watching all his desperate efforts. He did not see it, but it cast over him the reflection of its hidden light. That soul was joyously greedy to feel everything, to suffer everything, to observe and understand men, women, the earth, life, desires, passions, thoughts, even those that were torturing, even those that were mediocre, even those that were vile, and it was enough to lend them a little of its light to save Christophe from destruction. It made him feel, he did not know how, that he was not altogether alone, that love of being and of knowing everything, that second soul, raised a rampart against his destroying passions. But if it was enough to keep his head above water, it did not allow him to climb out of it unaided. He could not succeed in seeing clearly into himself, and mastering himself, and regaining possession of himself. Work was impossible for him. He was passing through an intellectual crisis, the most fruitful of his life. All his future life was germinating in it. But that inner wealth, for the time being, only showed itself in extravagance and the immediate effect of such superabundance was not different from that of the flattest sterility. Christophe was submerged by his life. All his powers had shot up and grown too fast, all at once, suddenly. Only his will had not grown with them, and it was dismayed by such a throng of monsters. His personality was cracking in every part. Of this earthquake, this inner cataclysm, others saw nothing. Christophe himself could see only his impotence to will, to create, to be. Desires, instincts, thoughts issued one after another like clouds of sulphur from the fissures of a volcano. And he was forever asking himself, And now what will come out? What will become of me? Will it always be so? Or is this the end of all? Shall I be nothing? Always? And now there sprang up in him his hereditary fires, the vices of those who had gone before him. He got drunk. 
he would return home smelling of wine, laughing, in a state of collapse. Poor Louisa would look at him, sigh, say nothing, and pray. But one evening, when he was coming out of an inn by the gates of the town, he saw, a few yards in front of him on the road, the droll shadow of his uncle Gottfried with his pack on his back. The little man had not been home for months, and his periods of absence were growing longer and longer. Christophe hailed him gleefully. Gottfried, bending under his load, turned round. He looked at Christophe, who was making extravagant gestures, and sat down on a milestone to wait for him. Christophe came up to him with a beaming face, skipping along, and shook his uncle's hand with great demonstrations of affection. Gottfried took a long look at him, and then he said, "'Good day, Melchior.' Christophe thought his uncle had made a mistake and burst out laughing. "'The poor man is breaking up,' he thought. "'He is losing his memory.' Indeed, Gottfried did look old, shriveled, shrunken, and dried. His breathing came short and painfully. Christophe went on talking. Gottfried took his pack on his shoulders again and went on in silence. They went home together, Christophe gesticulating and talking at the top of his voice, Gottfried coughing and saying nothing. And when Christophe questioned him, Gottfried still called him Melchior. And then Christophe asked him, "'What do you mean by calling me Melchior? My name is Christophe, you know. Have you forgotten my name?' Gottfried did not stop. He raised his eyes toward Christophe and looked at him, shook his head, and said coldly, "'No, you are Melchior. I know you.' Christophe stopped, dumbfounded. Gottfried trotted along. Christophe followed him without a word. He was sobered. As they passed the door of a café, he went up to the dark panes of glass, in which the gas-jets of the entrance and the empty streets were reflected, and he looked at himself. He recognized Melchior. He went home crushed. He spent the night, a night of anguish, in examining himself, in soul-searching. He understood now. Yes, he recognized the instincts and vices that had come to light in him. They horrified him. He thought of that dark watching by the body of Melchior, of all that he had sworn to do, and surveying his life since then, he knew that he had failed to keep his vows. What had he done in the year? What had he done for his God, for his art, for his soul? What had he done for eternity? There was not a day that had not been wasted, botched, besmirched, not a single piece of work, not a thought, not an effort of enduring quality, a chaos of desires, destructive of each other, wind, dust, nothing. What did his intentions avail him? He had fulfilled none of them. He had done exactly the opposite of what he had intended. He had become what he had no wish to be. That was the balance sheet of his life. He did not go to bed. About six in the morning it was still dark. He heard Gottfried getting ready to depart, for Gottfried had had no intentions of staying on. As he was passing the town, he had come as usual to embrace his sister and nephew. But he had announced that he would go on next morning. Christophe went downstairs. Gottfried saw his pale face and his eyes hollow with a night of torment. He smiled fondly at him, and asked him to go a little of the way with him. They set out together before dawn. They had no need to talk. They understood each other. As they passed the cemetery, Gottfried said, "'Shall we go in?' 
When he came to the place, he never failed to pay a visit to Jean-Michel and Melchior. Christophe had not been there for a year. Gottfried knelt by Melchior's grave and said, Let us pray that they may sleep well and not come to torment us. His thought was a mixture of strange superstitions and sound sense. Sometimes it surprised Christophe, but now it was only too dear to him. They said no more until they left the cemetery. When they had closed the creaking gate, and were walking along the wall through the cold fields, waking from slumber, by the little path which led them under the cypress trees from which the snow was dropping, Christophe began to weep. "'Oh, uncle!' he said. "'How wretched I am!' He dared not speak of his experience in love, from an odd fear of embarrassing or hurting Gottfried, but he spoke of his shame, his mediocrity, his cowardice, his broken vows. "'What am I to do, uncle? I have tried, I have struggled, and after a year I am no further on than before. Worse, I have gone back. I am good for nothing. I am good for nothing. I have ruined my life. I am perjured.' They were walking up the hill above the town. Gottfried said kindly, "'Not for the last time, my boy.' We do not do what we will to do. We will and we live. Two things. You must be comforted. The great thing is, you see, never to give up willing and living. The rest does not depend on us. Christophe repeated desperately, I have perjured myself. Do you hear? said Gottfried. The cocks were crowing in all the countryside. They, too, are crowing for another who is perjured. They crow for every one of us, every morning. A day will come, said Christophe bitterly, when they will no longer crow for me, a day to which there is no tomorrow. And what shall I have made of my life? There is always a tomorrow, said Gottfried. But what can one do if willing is no use? Watch and pray. I do not believe. Gottfried smiled. You would not be alive if you did not believe. Everyone believes. Pray. Pray to what? Gottfried pointed to the sun appearing on the horizon, red and frozen. Be reverent before the dawning day. Do not think of what will be in a year or in ten years. Think of today. Leave your theories. All theories, you see, even those of virtue, are bad, foolish, mischievous. Do not abuse life. Live in today. Be reverent towards each day. Love it. Respect it. Do not sully it. Do not hinder it from coming to flower. Love it even when it is gray and sad like today. Do not be anxious. See, it is winter now. Everything is asleep. The good earth will awake again. You have only to be good and patient like the earth. Be reverent. Wait. If you are good, all will go well. If you are not, if you are weak, if you do not succeed, well, you must be happy in that. No doubt it is the best you can do. So then, why will? Why be angry because of what you cannot do? We all have to do what we can, als ich kann. It is not enough, said Christophe, making a face. 
Gottfried laughed pleasantly. "'It is more than anybody does. You are a vain fellow. You want to be a hero. That is why you do such silly things. A hero. I don't quite know what that is. But, you see, I imagine that a hero is a man who does what he can. The others do not do it.' "'Oh!' sighed Christophe. "'Then what is the good of living? It is not worth while.' and yet there are people who say, he who wills can. Gottfried laughed again softly. Yes? Oh, well, they are liars, my friend, or they do not will anything much. They had reached the top of the hill. They embraced affectionately. The little peddler went on, treading wearily. Christophe stayed there, lost in thought, and watched him go. He repeated his uncle's saying, Als ich kann the best I can. And he smiled, thinking, Yes, all the same. It is enough. He returned to the town. The frozen snow crackled under his feet. The bitter winter wind made the bare branches of the stunted trees on the hill shiver. It reddened his cheeks, and made his skin tingle, and set his blood racing. The red roofs of the town below were smiling under the brilliant cold sun. The air was strong and harsh. The frozen earth seemed to rejoice in bitter gladness, and Christophe's heart was like that. He thought, I too shall wake again. There were still tears in his eyes. He dried them with the back of his hand and laughed to see the sun dipping down behind a veil of mist. The clouds, heavy with snow, were floating over the town, lashed by the squall. He laughed at them. The wind blew icily. Blow! Blow! Do what you will with me. Bear me with you. I know now where I am going. End of section 36